Terminator Now. Excerpt from the standard catalog of comic books from the editors of Comic Buyer's Guide and Comic Base, John Jackson Miller, Maggie Thompson, Peter Bickford, and Brent Frankenhoff. The Terminator, first series, now. In 1988, Now Comics began publishing the first of many comic titles based on the science fiction blockbuster The Terminator. The epic told of how in August 1997, a computer defense system called Skynet would gain consciousness and turn on its creators. Within weeks, it had used its control of the nuclear arsenal to all but destroy mankind. Then this machine intelligence began spawning other mechanical creations whose purpose was to annihilate the few human survivors. In 2031, the leader of humanity, John Connor, was leading his forces toward victory. That's when Skynet decided to change history and send a killing machine, a Terminator, back through time to kill Connor's mother Sarah and prevent John from being born. The movie covered Sarah's struggle for survival, while the 18 issues of this now comic series go back to the future to tell the tale of mankind's battle against the machines. Accurate sales figures for these now comics are difficult to come by, both because it was early enough in the distribution system that you still had many distributors who all had their own individual numbers, but also because now comics sales favored the newsstand to such a great degree, and yet they don't appear to have had to do any of the reporting of circulation that companies like DC and Marvel did that allowed us to see what their least average numbers were from year to year. Capital City Distribution sold 9,200 copies of Terminator number 1. Excerpts from Fred Schiller's July 9, 2006 blog post, titled Demon Days. During my limited time writing comics, I was lucky enough to work with two artists who were either dead on or pretty darn near the same wavelength as I was at the time. The first was Titanic Tom Morgan. Tom and I tried to break into comics at the same time so he read everything I wrote and I saw most of what he drew. Besides Tom, the other artist that I was on a parallel wavelength with was the fantastic Tony Atkins. Tony and I met through a mutual friend, Paul Mounts someone that Tom Morgan had introduced me to. Tom and Paul had gone to high school together. Years after that, Paul Mounts and Tony Akings had worked together doing television commercial storyboards which neither ever seemed too excited about. Paul was also wearing many hats at a new comics publisher called Now Comics. One night Tom and I were visiting Paul who told us about what was going on at Now Comics. They had the rights to do Astro Boy, Yawn, never saw the show didn't care, plus they had the rights to do Speed Racer and Racer X comics. I dropped out of the conversation for a few minutes to imagine what I would do with a Speed Racer comic. I came back and when Paul was telling us about another book that now was publishing called Rust. Ralph Snart Adventures ended with number 9, just as Dai Kamikaze was still getting started with number 2, as they were joined in June by the 6th, penultimate issue of Siphons, plus two debuts. Another monthly full-color series from now is Rust, a superhero series written by Steve Miller. John Statema, who has worked as an assistant for Jerry Ordway, will pencil the series, and Paul Mounts will be inking and coloring it. The first issue ships in June, and like Astro Boy, it's $1.50 a shot. Copy from a 1987 Rust house ad. Solitude brings these thoughts. They stop the pain, and I have this brainstorm about 12 times a day, knowing that the only floor I have is the floor of this 
alley that the rain keeps hitting, knowing that the only roof I have is the roof of my mouth that my heart beats against. The world sleeps without me tonight, here on the far side of town, where the saints stay underground, and I see a monster, and I look and I frown and I see the monster's me, Rust. It featured a cop who falls into a pit of corrosive acid, he survives, but his body is horribly scarred from head to toe, plus, in times of turmoil or if he's injured he bleeds acid. Paul continued on that at the end of the first or second issue this horribly scarred and corrosive man climbs into a garbage dumpster in an alley to get out of the rain for a few minutes sleep. That was a pretty cool visual that sticks with me today, some 15 years later. Excerpt from the summer 1987 cover dated Amazing Heroes preview special number 5, this being the one with the Arthur Adams Flaming Carrot Gumby cover. Rust. Written by Steve Miller, penciled by John Statema, inked by Paul Mounts, edited by Tony Caputo. 32 full-color pages, $1.50, monthly from Now Comics. Russ is not the name of any character in the book, assures Now publisher Tony Caputo. It's not a nickname, but an existence. Rust is reality. The main character, Scott Baker, is a thin, rusty guy. He's corrosive. You don't like shaking his hand. You think you might get AIDS or something. He's like, I hate to use a character from another company, but he's like Ben Grimm, the thing. If people really saw him running around, they would not see him as a hero, but as some kind of scary monster. Caputo added, Rust is a dramatic series. It's about how Rust deals with his powers and how society deals with his looks. It's going to satisfy people who really get into comics to read. Rust debuts in June. I'd always had some curiosity about Rust because it had fairly evocative ads, and I think I would occasionally see Rust on that Safeway grocery store newsstand. Can't say for certain, may not have gotten circulation, it might have just been that I saw house ads when I would flip through other now titles. So in 2023, I finally decided to take the plunge and at least read the first issue of Rust. Dramatic first issue, as it says on the cover. Awful cover. It's a painted piece of a figure, somewhat indeterminate whether male or female, leans male, sitting on the ground, his arms extended to his ankles, with a nighttime cityscape in the background. That could have been an okay second, third, fourth issue, once you have an idea of what you're dealing with. But as a first issue, it doesn't exactly grab you. It, it just looks unfinished and dour. So when you open up the book, the first thing you notice is it is entirely too dark. Colorist Signet Ash has just slathered dark, dark colors and has tried to do some experimentation with, I think, watercolors or painting, but all it does is make the book barely readable. Especially there are pages where he even colors the word balloons and it's so blurry and dark that I'm not even sure if like they, they didn't paint it and then take a photo of it and it didn't stat correctly. It's just awful. It's like they don't want you to read the book at all. And the issue itself is okay. We do not get an origin story. We've got the Scott Baker character breaking into a place because he wanted some food and that's how he ends up meeting the little girl Cheryl and her mom and of course everybody's kind of freaked out because he looks like a human being that's been sculpted out of material that has since rusted also he's a smoker I've always liked John Statham's artwork he is an incredible inker he was one of my favorite inkers back in the 90s he didn't do a lot of penciling most of what he did do was for Malibu comics he did this one particularly glorious cover for an issue of Mantra where it's a Valentine's issue and I think she's kissing Warstrike inside of a heart just great looking stuff. He's not quite there at this point, but it's definitely good looking, especially for an owl comic. And it's just such a shame that you can't see it because of the coloring. Anyway, not much happens. It's mostly a bunch of people arguing about whether or not they should let Scott hang out with them because he's creeping them out. Plus, uh, there's little girls around. And then at some point, somebody calls his old buddies on the police force, who then like send out a multiple cars, like something out of a Blues Brothers movie. And they're all trying to gun him down, but they can't because he's made of metal and he gets really mad and he ignites a fire, I think, because all the pages are just a solid shade of red and I can't tell what's happening because it's so damn dark. 
But I think what happens is that he ignites some gasoline and it creates a fire and it scares off the cops. And then he goes and he sleeps in an alley and that's the end of the issue. Not a lot of forward momentum, not a lot to encourage me to continue reading, especially since I had so much trouble reading it in the first place. I sniffed around the Speed Racer book but found out that just like they'd gotten Ken Stacy to do Astro Boy, they were looking for more of a name to write Speed. I think that year at San Diego they talked to people, like Mark Hevenier, but came up empty. Another long-lived original title was Steve Miller's Rust. He was off of the now Rust run after the second issue of 13 total. Meanwhile, there was some trouble brewing with the Rust book and Paul tossed my hat into the mix to try and help straighten things out. Paul is always doing that and I never thank him enough. A few issues later, Rust was going along on a pretty smooth path. Nobody told me to stop writing new stories so I keep at it, and after a handful of capable but temporary artists, Paul teamed me up with the astounding Tony Akins. I think I'd only met Tony once or twice by that point. Nice fellow, but fond of talking about his personal demons. I'd never met anyone with any sort of demons. I couldn't tell if he was serious or not. I sat and smiled like I understood what he was talking about. Today I do. Of course, several of mine are wandering around the room as I type this. I believe at this time Tony was rooming with Rich Powers, a talented fellow that my path would cross with on more than one occasion during the years that followed. Rich took me out to his studio, which was on the back porch of the apartment that he and Tony were sharing. The view from his studio was the alley of a mortuary funeral home. A couple of guys were wheeling what looked like a body or a casket into the back door. Rich said that it happened frequently, night and day. Tony was very excited about working on Rust with me. He hadn't drawn a large number of comics at that time in his career, but I think he was pretty adamant that I not write at full script, because that might handcuff him. I would write a couple of fat paragraphs of what I'd like to see happen in the bulk of the page, then give him a fairly concrete idea for a closing panel on the page. Tony took what I gave him. And in some insane and probably arcane ritual he peeked inside my head and saw what I was really looking for. It was always kind of frightening. He would draw things that I'd wanted but hadn't typed in the plot. He knew what I wanted to say, based on the plot that I had written, and him being so in tune with what I wanted. If a specific scene or plot point was important he would leave it alone and draw it just as I'd written. But most of the time if he knew a shortcut or a scenic route to getting the job done, he'd take it. I was never sorry that he did. It would always be like Christmas morning when Paul would give me new pages that Tony had penciled. Most time it was three or four at a time, but sometimes it was as many as six or seven. I would have to stop whatever it was I was doing at the time and study each page. I haven't noticed if he still does it today, but Tony used to be a big one for combining panels. There was rarely a single action going on in a single panel of rust. Action and elements tended to overlap from one panel to the next. Talk about keeping a writer on his toes. Excerpt from the January 15th, 1988 cover dated Amazing Heroes Preview Special number 133. This being the jam cover featuring Michael T. Gilbert's Mr. Monster and Paul Chadwick's Concrete. Rust, written by Fred Schiller, penciled by Tony Atkins, inked, colored, and edited by Signet Ash. 24 four-color pages. 
$1.75 monthly from now comics. There's no one named Rust in this book, says series writer Fred Schiller. Rust is more of a concept, a state of mind, as it tells the story of Scott Baker, a physically and mentally scarred individual who bleeds acid instead of blood. The book is about people, says Schiller, and about how people are changed and affected by being around Scott. Scott Baker becomes closely attached to a seven-year-old child named Cheryl after she witnesses the death of her mother in issue number four. Cheryl is actually more traumatized by seeing that murder than is first realized. When Scott lands the lead role in a horror flick called Return of the Scab Master, the movie's writer, Stephen Kingston, directs Scott and Cheryl to a child psychiatrist named Sarah Radcliffe. Issues number seven and eight present the battle for Cheryl's mind. Sarah, unable to reach the child, calls in Hemorrhage Head Harry, an old boyfriend, to help. HHH has the unique ability to intrude into other people's dreams, and Cheryl's dreams reveal a hidden, deep-rooted resentment of Scott. She unconsciously or subconsciously blames him for the death of her mother. Despite the fact that Scott is terribly dependent on Cheryl, she has become his reason for living, they eventually go their separate ways. Issues 9, 10, and 11 form a three-part story about the circle of power. Scott is offered the possibility of becoming normal if he will perform assassinations for a cultish organization. His assignment is to kill three key people, murderers that will ultimately result in the downfall of known civilization. Scott really doesn't care about the grand scheme of things. He just wants to change so he can get Cheryl back. Rust receives a pinch hitter penciler with issue number six as George Booker, regular artist for the new Racer X series, steps in for that issue. And then Pony started to flake. It could have been those personal demons he spoke of, or it could have been the princely sum of $14 a page that now was paying pencilers, when they had the money to pay it. Of all the comic publishers that I've worked with that have suffered through a case of the financial shorts, it was never as ugly as it was at now. I begged people to get them to letter or ink pages knowing full well they weren't going to get paid for their work. I never knew if Tony flaked because of lack of money or if he had other reasons. Excerpt from the July 15th, 1988 cover dated Amazing Heroes Preview Special number 145. This one with the Dave Stevens Rocketeer cover that cost me a pretty penny, let me tell you. Rust, written by Fred Schiller, penciled by Tony Akins and or Darren Goodhart, inked by Jim Brosman, edited by Fred Schiller. 32 full color pages, $1.75, newsstand distribution, monthly from now comics. Scott Baker witnesses the end of the world in issue number 13 of Rust. It's not a nuclear holocaust that causes it, says publisher Tony Caputo, but some stupid lazy lab technician who didn't clean up after an accidental spill, and then a horrible disease is released. This black plague of the 90s doesn't kill everyone off. Some people do recover, and Scott watches the human race slowly rejuvenates itself. This book is definitely an acquired taste, says Caputo. Yet, like Ralph Snart Adventures, once you get into it, you're hooked. Caputo hopes to introduce more readers to the moody, sometimes macabre, world of Scott Baker, an individual who bleeds acid instead of blood, by including a Terminator preview in Rust number 13. The Terminator exclusive will be produced by the same creative team currently working on Rust. Caputo feels that devoted Terminator followers will also be captivated by the unique world of Scott Baker. The Terminator preview issue will hit the stands in June 1988. Things got really weird when now snagged the rights to do a Terminator comic book. This was well before T2. Somehow the notion came up that if Tony Akins worked in-house, in the now offices, that he would get more work done. We got him a drawing the table and a chair and a tape dispenser and all that, and even so I only saw him there one or two times tops. I was mad as a wet hen, maybe madder. He kept promising and kept not showing up. One day I found a stack of cassette mixed tapes that he had brought in on his first or second visit. On one of the days that Tony was a no-show I flipped out and started snapping them in half like they were Pop-Tarts. To this day I'm ashamed of what I did. I have never been more frustrated with anyone in my life. 
but that was still no excuse for my behavior. Working with Tony Akins on Rust and on the Terminator comic was a standout for me. If they ever get this whole time travel thing figured out I'd like to go back to that time and tell myself to take more time scripting the pages before getting them off to be lettered in such a hurry. I would give up a lot to be able to go back and script those pages with the attention they deserved. I was writing a bunch of plots and scripts and stuff, most of it on the fly, but that's no excuse. My run on Rust was fun, the issues generated a lot of fan mail, but I have trouble reading them. The scripts should have been up to the standards of the artwork, no matter how late it was. Another problem concerns the inker of most of Tony's issues, Jim Brosman. Damn that kid was dedicated. He worked for months without seeing a single penny. He wasn't the most talented inker on the planet. But I have to give him massive props for delivering art fast and when it was needed when no other talent would return my telephone calls. I've got a couple of projects that I'm currently working on that are horribly overdue, and that I just can't get a handle on. And a thought crossed my mind the other day that maybe I'm being plagued by my personal demons. And sure enough, there they are. Well, Tony Akins overcame his so I guess I can do a little ass-kicking of my own. Excerpts from the January 15th, 1989 cover dated Amazing Heroes Preview Special number 157. The Terminator, written by Ron Fortier, penciled by Thomas Tinney, inked by Jim Brosman, edited by Catherine Llewellyn and Tony Caputo. 32 full-color pages, $1.75, newsstand distribution, monthly from Now Comics. We'll talk about issue number 7, February 1989 first, because that's a fill-in issue by Jack Herman that appears between the two-part story line begun in number six and ending in number eight. Okay, here goes. In issue number seven, readers will get a glimpse of the Terminator dog, a nasty little beastie with steel teeth and scan vision. The truly insidious part is that the little pup wins the hearts of children in the hospital and then proceeds to rip it and them up. Pencils for that issue are by Robin Ator and inks by Jim Broseman. The preceding issue, number six, begins a two-part tale in which the Sarah Slammers hide out in a mine shaft and are attacked by hunter-killer Terminators. Tim Reese narrowly escapes death in that encounter, and while most are able to get out of the mine shaft, some die trying. The Sarah Slammers were using the mine shaft as a base, and the Terminators attack with a vengeance because the Renegades had stormed their flesh farm. Issue number eight wraps up the storyline, which is set in the Florida Everglades. And as for the Terminators, you know they'll be back. Issue number seven and number eight will feature covers painted in watercolor by Norm Brayfogle. Editorial from the inside front cover of the Terminator number eight, the official stamp of approval, approved by the Comics Code Authority. The comic magazine Association of America was formed back in 1954. Its goal was to ensure the quality of the comics you can purchase on your local newsstand. The quality of editorial content is very carefully observed by the CMAA, aka the Comics Code. Now Comics has been approved for its quality and consistent editorial commitment. We at Now Comics are very proud to be a member of an association with a 30-year dedication to comics and their growth. Will our comics change? No. They have been approved as they are. So why is this seal of approval important? Well, besides the obvious fact of keeping with a tradition over three decades old, you already may know the other reason. Is this the first Now Comics you've ever seen? If it is, that means that the retailer you purchased it from was waiting for that seal of approval before carrying this product. Now Comics is going into more outlets than ever before. You'll be able to pick up Now Comics where you've never seen them before. And although all Now Comics will take you to new heights of adventure and outrageous new limits of humor, tell everyone that now is the time and you won't have to drive across town to get it. Tony Caputo, publisher. The inside cover blurb for Terminator number 8 by Ron Fortier, Thomas Tinney, Jim Brosman, Suzanne Dechik. Beginning the final battle, which will be an uphill climb to meet the famous John Connor. Monthly. Despite the inside front cover announcements, In the Belly of the Beast is the least violent, most bloodless now comics Terminator story yet. 
and it is still being written by Jack Herman, though the other credits are correct. Earlier this episode, we offered background on the creative team for Terminator No. 1, and how when adjusted for inflation, now is paying Tony Akins $36.39 for a page of publishable comic book art. Take that to a comic convention and see how far it will get you in the artist alley of 2024. They didn't say why Fred Schiller also dropped out, maybe out of solidarity, or perhaps because the writer was probably being offered considerably less than $300 an issue in unadjusted dollars. A high-grade copy of Terminator No. 1 will cost you more than the entire creative team was paid, and they were expected to produce a whole other comic that month in the form of Rust. This will be Jack Herman's final issue, and I tried to get his side of the departure, but I couldn't find anything online about it. He's done a few interviews, but they always seem to center on his work as co-creator of the villains and vigilantes role-playing game with Jeff D., who tends to join and arguably dominate said interviews. Eclipse Comics published the related comic book miniseries that Jack Herman wrote, plus they did the Champions comic series. So someone has definitely gone out of business betting big on off-brand superhero-themed RPG adaptations. In the end, Herman wrote five issues of The Terminator, but only finished the two fill-in stories. The Sarah Slammer's arc initiated in issue number six will be left for the next writer to wrap up. The painted Norm Brayfogel cover depicts the T-1000 model Terminator on the swamp boat that was introduced two issues ago. This is our first hero Terminator, the prime antagonist across a multi-issue story and looks more or less like the T-800 from the movie that was portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tall muscular guy wearing sunglasses is not an imminent likeness concern, and in fact his business in the front crop top looks more like Arnie in T2 than the original, plus they added a ponytail in the back. Still, why use the T-1000 designation but to allow plausible deniability to what is clearly a first movie-style Terminator, not the liquid metal upgrade that won't debut for several years? I do find it curious though that now either successfully anticipated or directly influenced elements seen in the eventual movie sequel, despite still not being very good comic books. Insisting that the series remain in Florida, the Slammers moved to their third base, imaginatively dubbed Third Base, in a partially collapsed titanium mining site near Lake Okeechobee. There were a bunch of people maintaining the dilapidated site who I won't bother to name because you know they're just cannon fodder restock. In fact, I think they're even recycling the names of previously terminated Slammers, so maybe Slager is just what they call red shirts in 2031. Within minutes of arriving, the synthetic Conrad had already reworked a rudimentary off-grid computer system to reactivate the elevators and power more of the mine, showing how useless the on-site rebels were and of course setting up an Achilles heel for later. Speaking of which, the captured Defard had already told the T-1000 where third base was, so the three Terminators from issue number 6 were arriving almost immediately after Sarah's slammers. They implied in his first appearance that Defard either had a direct mental connection to Skynet or that he was some sort of rain man whose brain could calculate Skynet's movies. It seemed like they were setting up a major plot point, but Defar only appears in two panels here, bundled up on the airboat. Despite being drawn by the same artists, his hair looks different and the new colorist didn't follow any guidance from his first appearance. Without the caption, Defar would not be recognizable, especially because the art only differentiates characters through broad characteristics like facial hair and accessories. If you put sunglasses on Leahy, he's either the T-1000, and say, 
That's just going to be confusing. Maybe we should call Crystal Pepsi Arnie the T825 or something? It takes more initiative and verbally bosses the Dreadnought Terminators. So it does seem to be a very slight cut above the rest. Its official designation is Terminator hashtag DIX-190. So Dix, despite being nearer to the Bahamas than Tallahassee, the colorist takes the artist's vague illusion to foliage and renders them snow-capped mountaintops. I assume the colorist was getting paid in penny candy, learning her trade from the Bazooka Joe rapper strips. The girl with the freckles that the dialogue identifies as Essie, because I sure couldn't despite being eight issues in, needs to talk to Gao, who I assume is an Asian guy, because her life is falling apart. But Gao won't make time for her, so she sort of talks to Doyle. I wouldn't have been able to name her with a gun to my head. But that's the Protocera Connor T2 model that's been wearing the Dwayne Wayne circular sunglasses since the first issue. I'll be curious to see if the next writer addresses the zygote of a subplot. And yes, phrasing. Long story short, Terminator DIX swam under the mine, came up in a central control area, takes over the base's computer system, orders a hunter-killer airstrike that takes out several new characters and collapses more of the base. For no good reason, DIX has only brought the two Dreadnought Terminators with him, and they are separately taken out by the also-divided Sarah Slammers. Either the artist or the writer can't keep track of who is where, because the dialogue will reference missing or presumed deceased Slammers that are clearly visible in the panels where they're being discussed. Lei's group reenacts the mining cart race from the Temple of Doom movie and or arcade game. I mean the action and visuals of the video game were better than here. They're pursued by treadmill-driven mechs that look more like Starriers or Box from Logan's Run. A page is devoted to the valiant death of some guy who may have been in a panel before that page. Kind of like the page that went to the dude keeping watch that got blown up by the HK that managed to sneak up on him in the guard tower. Toward the end, Terminator DIX got the drop on Tim Reese, taking the time to quip join your brother, allowing Conrad to tackle and wrestle with it until DIX fell down a hole. At this point, they draw Conrad like it wears a Hal Jordan-style domino mask, which I would complain about if I didn't desperately need the affectation to tell Conrad apart from any other male in this book except Tim. Actually, he kind of looks like Tim, as they both have the Fabio hair going. Anyway, the letters column finally gets a name, Terminal Data, marred by annoying blue line images running under the text. There's also a single-page text piece by the incoming writer, printed on blue paper with black ink. Now comics wanted to compete with type 2 diabetes in the category of vision impairment. On Perfect Computers, Reflections by Ron Fortier. Garbage in, garbage out. Sound familiar to you? If it does, then somewhere in your life's experiences, you've attended a formal introductory class in computer science. That's what I did nearly six years ago, when the little box doohickeys were still relatively unknown toys in the cultural scene. I distinctly remember feeling very intimidated by these electronic gadgets that can ingest copious amounts of data and then vomit all of it right back at you in neat, methodical programs. It was downright spooky. Until, that is, our rumbled, rumbled old professor allayed our fears by reminding us that computers are, in verity, the creations of mere mortals. Thus computer, any computer, from your basic multi-billion dollar NORAD defense system to my chummy diminutive PC, personal computer to the uninitiated, can only be as brilliant as the people who program it, i.e. you put garbage in and bingo, you get garbage out. It is really quite elementary. It is also very logical. Another computerese type word. Which brings me to a movie called The Terminator. The film sets forth the marvelous science fiction premise that a supercomputer has somehow become a 
aware of its own existence. It then decides to terminate all human life from the face of the globe. Why? Because the computer, Skynet by name, sees humanity as imperfect and thereby unworthy to rule. The movie became a big hit. Lots of action and bizarre futuristic landscapes peppered with fascinating men and women locked in an endless death struggle with the ultimate machine. The fans ate it up. At the same time, they routinely debated various aspects of the plot structure. One of the most often repeated criticisms to reach my ears was based on the machine's supposed infallibility. It went something like this. How could the humans possibly win the war against a perfect thinking machine? Impossible, right? Of course. If you believe the basic assumption that perfection is possible, I do not. Skynet is not perfect. It was made by imperfect beings, humans. After once spending two years as a college philosophy major, I defy anyone to convince me that something imperfect can create something perfect, i.e. without fault. Ergo, Skynet has faults, bugs, glitches, or whatever else we might choose to call them. How would these imperfections affect Skynet's overall performance in its contest with mankind? Well, for one thing, it no longer is assured a guaranteed victory. Note I did not say it could not, in the end, triumph. What I said was, if you adhere to the rules of basic reality, it's still very much an open game, folks, which is the core of drama, undetermined conflict. I am fascinated by this conflict and hope in the issues ahead to delve deeper into the mysteries of Skynet and the whole Terminator world. I have some ideas of what kinds of things we will encounter. I'm also positive there are some nasty surprises along the way even I'm not ready for. I hope you'll be as intrigued and join me in these adventures. Excerpt from the standard catalog of comic books from the editors of Comic Buyer's Guide and Comic Base. Capital City dropped to 5,975 copies for Terminator number 2. Another slight dip, very slight, 5,675 copies for 3. 6,400 copies for 4. So as you can see, it's actually an uptick now. 6,975 copies to 5. Number 6, 7,100. And number 7, 7,075 copies. So issue number 7 marks the post number 1 peak for the ongoing series. The January 1st, 1989 cover date of Amazing Heroes number 156. Had a blurb for Now Comics' Terminator number 8. Sarah Slammers are scarred by yet another hostile attack by Skynet. By Schiller, Akers, and Roseman. Color comic, $1.75. Ships in January. Mostly correct, wrong artist. Interesting is on the opposing page, there's a new ad for Rust Volume 2. And we shall all come to love Big Brother, George Orwell. It's been three years since the deadly plague that almost annihilated the human race. The handful of people that survived fell into a totalitarian society built on power and greed. Scott Baker for years has cursed his very existence as the undying monster he had become and the corruption of man that changed him that way. The evils of man have disfigured Scott Baker, but he will not allow them to deface the right given this race by the universe itself. Perhaps that is his destiny. And along with the advertisement, there's also now on sale blurbs, which includes Terminator number five. So the coming comics is talking about Terminator number eight, but the actual book out around the time based on now's own promotional copy is five. Excerpt from the January 15th, 1989 cover dated Amazing Heroes preview special number 157. This being a Will Eisner, Batman, the Spirit team up cover. Rust, written by Catherine Llewellyn, watercolor by Vincent Locke, edited by Catherine Llewellyn and Tony Caputo. 32 full color pages, $1.35. Newsstand distribution, monthly from now comics. Writer editor Catherine Llewellyn says the current storyline for Rust is actually part of volume two, with events occurring after the terrible plague that wipes out most of the world's population. Scott Baker wakes up after this disaster only to discover that America has been taken over by a Cuban named Raul Ersantes and that the US of A is now a dictatorship. It smacks of 1984, comments writer Llewellyn, and Scott inadvertently gets caught up with the resistance and becomes a martyr of sorts. Scott is actually trying to rescue Slurpa, who is not really Slurpa at all, but a murderess. He becomes a political prisoner and a public 
public idol, but it's not really what he wants, says Llewellyn. Scott begins going around and helping people, and eventually does meet up with the real Slurpa, who turns out to be the mistress of Arisantes. He rises to some degree of popularity, almost legendary status, and then falls out of favor, says Llewellyn. This future America storyline will wrap up over a seven-issue period. The third issue of that plotline will be rendered by James O'Barr, and aspiring artists are invited to offer their versions of the characters of Rust for the letters pages. We'd like four-color artwork, editor Llewellyn says, but this is an open forum for display only. So the second volume of Rust had some compelling advertisements, and actually the cover is much, much better than the first edition's cover. So I figured, okay, I'm trying the first volume, let's try an issue of the second volume. February cover date, it features Rust holding his forehead in his hand, not quite a face palm, and in the background there's just the impression of all these ghosts screaming, tormented ghosts following Rust around. First page is an image of Rust appearing to look through a narrow panel, and then everything around him is gray, and you can really, really see the brush strokes from the watercolors. You could argue that his texture, I gotta be honest, to my eye, it just looks like it's not very well polished. Then we begin an origin sequence for the character of Rust, so you can see how he became who he was. And then there's allusions to previous volumes, a dead woman, dead girl child. Presumably this is alluding to Cheryl, but again, I didn't read any other issues besides the first issue of the first volume, so I don't know much more than you guys. And then we see the very stereotypical South American dictator who, as noted in The Amazing Heroes, has taken over the United States. Various acts of violence and oppression. And then the very end, we see Rust carrying some dead lady around. Now, here's why this book sucks. Clearly, Catherine Llewellyn read specifically Electra Assassin and then tried to copy it without having any of the intuitive narrative sense of one of the great writers in comic book history. And so it's just page after page of, okay, well, I'm gonna read you the first two pages. Scott, cop, me, duties, uphold the law, protect. Most of these are in individual captions, by the way. Dollar sign, toxic, dollar sign, chemical waste, benzodine, dollar sign, dumping, corporation, dollar sign, immoral, dollar sign, 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 illegal, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, murdering scum, killed, dead, blood, throes of death, spasms, fist. That's page one. Page two, they'll bounce. Holy shh. Putrid, toxic waste, acrid, burning, scorching the air, liquid fire, where'd he, pain. The whole book is like this. There is some dialogue, nothing is explained well, everything are these little snippets of a thought or a feeling. It's frustrating, it's galling, very much like AI, where somebody fed a bunch of the Miller Sienkiewicz material into a computer, and this is the stuff that got spat out, but not even like the current generation. I'm talking about some of those previous generations, like the one that made the funny Harry Potter nonsense non sequitur book. That's how this book reads. You can tell it, the, the influence is so obvious, and the lack of capability to mimic that style correctly, it, it's just infuriating. It's, they charged people for this. They thought they could get away with this. They thought that they were doing something of that caliber. So pretentious and so incompetent. On the plus side, I can read the stupid captions and the bad dialogue. It's not like the first volume where it's all destroyed by the colorist. Colors are okay. The art quality varies pretty wildly. Again, they're, they're trying to do some Kevich. Vince Locke is not and has never been Bill Sienkiewicz. But Locke does get better. And actually, this isn't terrible. They, if the story hadn't been completely moronic, 
quick. They might've had something here. I really do like the sort of uh, Roman font that they use for the Rust logo with the little triangles. It's so very late 80s. I dig that nostalgia quality that it has, but this is absolutely the kind of book that killed the market for painted comic books. There was a big thing, people may not remember this anymore. Painted comics were like the new hotness for a while there. And then specifically Rust number one and the other issues, by the way, Vincent Locke does not stick with the book for very long. That's This, this specifically killed that entire market. It's that bad. The February 15th, 1989 cover dated Amazing Heroes number 159. Coming distractions for February 16th through 28th offered the now comics blurb. Terminator number nine, Sarah Slammers, take it on the chin again. Color comic, $1.25, ships in February. Note the lack of creative team being offered. They're not sticking their neck out again. With Terminator number nine, the editorial material is moved from the front cover, which now features a house ad, to the last interior page, facing another ad on the inside back cover. Among the blurbs in the now newsflash, the Terminator, exclamation point, and a super hot title, and issue number nine will scorch those hands with an official Paul Galassi painted cover. Don't miss this first issue by regular writer Ron Fortier. Ron has developed a suspenseful and exciting climb to issue number 12's climactic introduction to humankind's savior, John Connor. Once again, it's unfortunate that Tony Caputo, publisher editor-in-chief, does not have anybody to edit his copy so that it doesn't have weird nonsensical elements. As for instance, the now newsflash from the next issue, number 10, starts with, oops, looks like the Paul Galassi cover for the Terminator appeared this month. Isn't it worth the wait? The copy for Terminator 9 reads, by Ron Fortier, Thomas Tinney, Jim Brosman, Suzanne Detchik. Beginning the final battle, which will be an uphill climb to meet the famous John Connor. Given the random exclamation point in the now newsflash, it's worth noting there's no exclamation points except in the very last part of the line from the Terminator 9 blurb and no mention of the monthly status either. I find that monthly status highly suspect anyway. The Terminator number 9 was more competent but less interesting than the car wreck the title had been up to this point, excepting the goofy last minute cover swap provided by an unidentified artist. Thomas Tenney seems to have had more time to craft the pencil and had also been looking at more contemporary artists like Todd McFarlane, so the art is tighter and cleaner than it's been since the story in the Amazon, though it comes short of matching it. A good inker had the raw material to elevate the pages, but we're still stuck with Jim Brosman merely tracing, likely pro bono. Ron Fortier is professional and conscientious, seemingly having read through the series to date, taken notes, and observantly addressed the key points within the title. The primary survivors of Sarah's Slammers had exited the mine compound on foot, and each was named and fairly swiftly provided some conflict or character trait. Leahy is still the rugged leader, though his abilities are called into question by the Slammers' increasingly dire circumstances. When they find and free to fart in the fanboat, the Slammers have to restrain Leahy from beating the addled man who had given up the location of third base. Whether on being gaslight or my comics reading literacy, has come into question, Slager is indeed still the last living black man among the slammers. Casey, or Catherine Casey, is the pilot with long flat brown hair and bangs that just wants to get back home to her colony. Doyle the Protocera Connor was so battle-hardened as to be notably unfeeling, rubbing teammates the wrong way with her callousness. Chi Gao was one of the moon people, who was also becoming emotionally distant, but was still the top technician available. Freckled Ginger Essie is the slammer with too many feelings, especially where Gao is concerned. References made to Rossetti, 
the Lunar Colony member who had shot herself dead at the end of the first story arc, and in fact there's a lengthy flashback to the backstory on the colony. Despite essentially being the third chapter of a four non-consecutive issue story, Fortier made sure readers were up to date for his first issue. Elsewhere, the synthetic Conrad helped protect young Tim Reese from gators and naders, guiding him to a small boat that it paddled downriver. Resting for the night, they found the small shack of an old Seminole woman who spoke in broken English, who offered them rabbit stew and shelter. Meanwhile, Terminator DIX-190 sent a report to the Skynet satellite CPU, which rejected its assertion that a human had managed to fight DIX hand-to-hand. -hand. Dix was ordered to stand down pending investigation, and the Terminator continued to express uncommon but very Arnold-like sarcastic insubordinate outbursts. Sarah Slammers hotwired another HK airship and flew it to Cocoa Beach, just in time to help Slager's former compatriots Iron Horse Adams and his cavalry unit. After downing a pair of HK units, the United Human Rebels traveled to a mall complex and sprawling underground garage that the cavalry called home. The twist at the ending was that they were near Cape Canaveral, where Skynet had been observed readying a space shuttle for an assault on the lunar colony that they had recently discovered. I think it's mentioned in a Ron Fortier interview that I'll run next episode, but he asserted that he got the Terminator job because one of his predecessors was a science fiction writer more familiar with prose than comics who wrote too many text-heavy, inert scripts that prompted artists to quit as dull books. Except this is easily the talkiest issue of the Blasted series, with very little action, and the same artist draws almost the entire series across three writers' tenure. What the heck was he on about? In 2006, Ron Fortier spoke with Foster's Daily Democrat, quote, I came on board with Now Comics about a year after they came on the scene. I met the publisher at their San Diego Comic Con booth and we hit it off. He had been publishing The Terminator for almost six months and was not happy with the direction the current writer was taking the series. By the time I left San Diego, I'd taken on that particular series as its new writer and given the publisher my Green Hornet package. Two months later they got the Green Hornet license and I was writing two monthly titles for them. Excerpt from the podcast Why I Love Comics number 199 with Ron Fortier, published March 5, 2015. As it turns out, that year I was off to San Diego, to the big San Diego Comic Con. First time ever. Uh, because myself and one of my dear good friends and artist friends, Gary Cato of Hawaii, and I had finally broken into the prose. We'd done a few scripts, we'd been published, and ultimately that led a professional writer editor named Mike Friedrich to become aware of us. Now, Mike had started out working as a writer editor at Marvel Comics, and after about six, seven years in that field, he saw the need for an agency that would represent writers and artists, and that's what he started. He started an agency called Starwinch. And so he called Gary and basically recruited Gary as one of his clients. At which point, Gary turned around and said, wait, you ought to talk to Ron. Ron writes the stories. Sure, the next thing you know, I get a call from California. It's Mike Krieger. He said, I'd like you to be one of my clients. You know, send me contracts, right? He's going to get a percentage, whatever, but he's going to find me working. But as typical agency things work. At the same time, though, he turned around and goes, well, he says, you know, the San Diego Comic Con is coming next month. So that you're coming. And I had no, absolutely no plans to go to San Diego, all right? I mean, I'd been in the business by then maybe five or six years. I'd published small independent comics from various, the Popeye comic, a few other things. And, you know, just the thought of going to this con with 60,000 other fans and top-notch professionals, like, yeah, I'm not ready for that. And, and Mike's argument was, oh, yeah, you are. This is what this is about. You have to come to this convention so that I can introduce you to the right people. We start networking. It makes sense. My wife jumps on board. 
trip to San Diego. Why not? All right, let's go. And so we, I'm trying to remember, this was 1989. Go to the San Diego Comic Con. And that's where I got the job to write the Terminator comic for Now Comics out of Chicago. We're getting ready to leave. And as you alluded to in my memoirs, there's a story behind Terminator and my getting it and how that happened. But I want to move on to, we're getting ready to leave. I've agreed to write the Terminator comic for Now Comics. And we're 20 minutes from getting on the shuttle and we're going back to the airport in San Diego. And I tell my wife, well, let's go over to the now table and say goodbye to the people there. And I'll let them remind them all of a sudden, you know, a script and some plot outlined as soon as we get back home. So we go over and the publisher's standing there. He sees me come over and shake hands. And it's really nice meeting you. And I'm looking forward to reading his scripts and hope he can help us out, blah, blah, blah. And somewhere in that little tiny conversation, he comes up with this thing about, man, there are so many great characters out that are no longer being published as comic adventures. And he rattles off Flash Gordon, Tarzan, the Green Hornet. You know, when I hear the Green Hornet, I just, I, I, I pull up my police. I have, I've been carrying that skip around my police for four days. I plopped it down on the table in front of me, looks at me, and I open it up, I take it out, I take out this like huge puzzle. And it's he goes, What's this? I said, That's a proposal for a brand new green pointed comic. Now he's flipping through it and he sees samples of Steve's art and sees where I'm doing the legacy stuff. And now he's looking, he goes, Who did this? I said, Yeah, I did this. I said, This is what I'd like to write. Oh, all right. He goes, Well, look, he says, I'll, I'll see if I can find out who's a license holder is and the copyrights and blah blah. And I just looked at him, I said, Look at the last page. We looked at the last page and there it all was. I had done my homework, telephone numbers, address. Everybody you had to talk to to get the rights. That impressed to no end. We shook hands and advice. I ain't going to follow us up. And I don't know if he is or not. I come home and within a week I'm writing Terminator scripts. And this goes on for maybe two months, right? And one night, phone rings. I pick it up and it's, it's the publisher. Hey, Ron, you'll never guess where my man. I'm like, no, I guess I won't. Right. So I'm in New York. Okay. He so said, I sent your proposal to the people who own the rights the Greenhorn. It was a, a holding company called Leisure Concepts that managed the property for the family that actually owned the property. Tony had called them, the publisher, and send them the script. And upon reading the script, they got back and told them they wanted to come to New York. They wanted to talk to them. So he said, I'm going in tomorrow for a conference and we're going to find out what's going on. I'm up the phone. My wife looked at me. I said, he's in New York. And they read my proposal. So believe me, next day was like one of the longest days of my life. I mean, I had a day job. So yeah. You're staring at the phone. I have my money. I, you know, I'm married. I, I have children. And I, I work. I work at a factory, a general electric factory. All the time, I'm still writing, you know, on the side. Because I had responsibilities. I had family to bring up. And if you're a freelancer, I don't care what you're doing. There's never any guarantees next week that I have a job. All right? So I never gave up that responsibility. I wanted a steady paycheck coming every day. And happily. I did 30 years ago. I got a nice pension. But the idea is, I, I tell people all the time, GE fed, fed the body, the writing fed the soul. To wrap this story up, I'm at the factory, work all day, can't wait to get home. My wife and I are sitting there, she's getting dinner ready. And the phone rings. Here we go. So I pick up the phone. It's the publisher again. Get ready to start writing green one. And I'm like, dumbfounded. He says, this is what I had learned. He said, over the last 10 years, every major comic company had approached them to get the rights to do the green one. And that included Marvel and DC and others, Dark Horse, Image, whatever. But they all fall into the old trap. They just wanted to do a different the Green Hornet. Mine was the only one that went way back to the radio days and tied all those characters together as one family. And they absolutely 
they loved it. And they basically told the publisher that if I was the guy writing it, that's what they wanted to see in the comic. And they gave him the contract. And so, like I said, within three months ago in San Diego, I was writing two monthly comics. Terminator, I would write the Terminator one week. I would write a Green Hornet the following week. And then the last two weeks of the month, I would devote to writing other projects I was working on, independent stuff that I was still trying to sell to other companies and create my own characters. Excerpt from Ron Fortier's Airship 27 blog post of June 29, 2007. Back in the late 1980s I had the fun of writing the Terminator comic series for Now Comics. The book, at that time, was based on the first blockbuster movie of the same name, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as most of you well know, after a very successful acting career, Mr. Schwarzenegger went into politics and is now the Honorable Governor of California. What you do not know is that one of his bodyguards went to college with our son, Alan, and they remain close friends. A few months back, Alan reminded his pal that his stepfather had once written Terminator comic books. One thing led to another until both of them thought it would be very cool if I sent the governor autographed copies of the books. I was only too happy to oblige and put together a package of 16 issues, signed them all, and sent them to Alan. He in turn forwarded the package to his old college chum, who then presented them to the governor. Thus, a week ago I found an envelope in my mailbox from the office of the governor, Sacramento, California inside was a short, wonderful thank you letter from Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator himself. In his note he said getting those comics brought back lots and lots of wonderful memories of when he made that movie. He also added that he has absolutely no time to read for pleasure these days, the duties of his office keeping busy 24-7. But he did promise, one day, in the not-too-distant future, to read every single one of them. He finished by thanking me sincerely for thinking of him and sending them along. What a truly gracious letter from a man I truly admire. You have to know it will be framed and given a place of honor on the walls of the Batcave. Too cool. Excerpt from the standard catalog of comic books from the editors of Comic Buyer's Guide and Comic Base. Issues 8 and 9 reported sales of 6,475 copies each from Capital City, with a slight uptick to 6,775 for number 10, 6,350 for 11, 6,025 for 12, 5,525 for 13, 5,275 for 14, 5,675 for 15, 5,425 for 16, and 5,050 for number 17, marking the lowest point of sales throughout the now run. From the March 15th, 1989 cover dated Amazing Heroes number 161, Newsline, distributor names 88 top 10 publishers. In their January internal correspondence newsletter, Capital City Distribution published their figures for the top 10 publishers in the comic book industry based on two different criteria. Capital's first list is based solely on market share of the comic book market. The companies in their market share are as follows. Marvel 42.64%, DC 30.98%, First 4.14%, Eclipse 3.60%, Comico 2.26%, Eternity 1.35%, Gladstone 1.16%, now 0.97%, Dark Horse 0.96%, Blackthorn 0.93%. Capital's second list tabulated market share based on all products offered, including books and specialty items such as posters. These results were significantly different. For instance, neither Now nor Dark Horse made it onto that list. There's also a blurb here. Now Comics adapts Baron Munchausen. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the latest film by Terry Gilliam, Time Bandits, Brazil, and probable director of the proposed Watchmen movie, will be adapted in a four-issue miniseries from Now Comics. The movie, scheduled for March 10th worldwide release, tells the story of the legendary Baron and his super-powered companions, Albrecht, who's super-strong, Gustavus, with super-hearing, Adolphus, 
with Super Sight, and Berthold, played by Gilliam's former Monty Python comrade Eric Idle, the fastest man in the world. Robin Williams will also appear in the film. The comic book is adapted by Matthew Costello, with art by the Insight Studios team, and is being personally approved by Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen number one is in four color for $1.75, and should be on sale April 6th in comic shops. Now publisher Tony Caputo said he hopes to continue Baron Munchausen as a regular series if the movie and the adaptation both do well. I presume they did not. We also have coming distractions for March 16th through 31st. Now has a blurb for Terminator number 6. The introduction of John Connor, color comic, $1.75, ships in March. I hope the numbering was just dyslexic. The front cover from the Terminator number 10 is in fact a Paul Glacey painting. It features a cowboy who I assume is Iron Horse Adams and a random soldier guy who I'm guessing is Leahy standing around like some cracking molten rocks in a desert somewhere. If it didn't have a big The Terminator logo above it, I would have no reason to think this had anything to do with Terminator. Looks like a neo-western or something. Galacy will have much better luck with his Terminator work at Dark Horse. The final page blurb reads, Terminator 10 by Ron Fortier, or is it Ron Fortier, I think? Thomas Tinney, Rich Rankin, Suzanne Dechnik. Beginning the final battle, which will be an uphill climb to meet the famous John Connor in the special double-sized issue number 12. Not a lot of variants in these blurbs. By the way, this issue also features a blurb for Rust issue 6 of 7. In Terminator number 10, the Slammers and the Cavalry discuss the possibility of launching an assault on the space shuttle to prevent Skynet's destruction of the lunar colony, despite being responsible for the deaths of the troop that failed to liberate him from the Terminators, and then the massive losses at third base. Defard lost his mind over the proposal. He was incensed that the lunar colonists had abandoned Earth and secretly lived in peace these past 30 years. A contentious vote was taken among the rebels, and when striking against the shuttle won out, Defard declared them traitors and drew a gun, blasting wildly. What a funny work of fiction this is, with a rogue nutcase violently opposing an obviously free and fair election based solely on not having gotten his way. The escapist fantasy of non-political comics of your Leigh tackled Defard and threw him another beating, and the rebels went on to blow up the shuttle. On their second try, Doyle showed her humanity by siding with the lunar colony. Gao again warned to Essie and then she revealed that she was pregnant. So Ron Fortier accomplished two important goals in fleshing out Sarah's slammers, and actually allowing them a victory, so they wouldn't seem so pathetic and doomed. Ron Fortier told, indie creator in 2012 that his most impressive works included, my two and a half year run on Now Comics The Green Hornet. Up until that series, the character had not been seen in comics in over 20 years. It was easily the company's most successful series. Then shortly before leaving them, I wrote a five-issue Terminator series called The Burning Earth which was illustrated by this new kid named Alex Ross. It was his first comics work ever. Wonder whatever happened to him. Ha! Excerpts from Fred Schiller's July 9, 2006 blog post, titled Demon Days. I remember the famous Now Comics bankruptcy. I was living and working in NYC at the time I received the paperwork. In exchange for monies owned me I was invited to return to Chicago to pick up a couple crates of Astro Boy number 4. At the time it didn't seem worth the effort. It still doesn't today. I rarely mention Steve Miller when talking about Rust, aside from being introduced to him at a comic convention once and shaking his hand. I've never had any interaction with the fellow. He seemed nice enough. It had always been my impression that Miller and now comics publisher Tony Caputo were friends and had perhaps hashed out details of the Rust book together. Tony was a creative fellow having written and drawn comics on his own. I certainly did not create the character of Scott Baker aka Rust, 
and I've never claimed to have. I did cook up a cast of supporting characters for the issues that I wrote. One of my favorite characters was a retired porn actress who strikes up a friendship with Scott and joins him on the road for some adventures. Well, after a tussle, Miller eventually won back the copyright to publish a four-issue series at Adventure Comics in 1992, plus two issues at Caliber in 1996. So once again, Steve Miller has reclaimed the title that he created and got to write, I think, one or two issues of. He gets the rights back after the bankruptcy of now. He takes it to Adventure Comics, which will eventually be purchased by Marvel as part of the Malibu sale. The Legend returns in full color, painted Dave Dorman cover, very nice. Interiors illustrated by Philip Hester and Andy Parks. Miller writes on the inside front cover, welcome. Second chances are rare treasures. They're also scary. You get a shot at correcting your previous mistakes, but if it's not better than your original effort, you can look pretty foolish. It's been almost five years since I originally danced with Mr. Baker. Now, comics without superheroes is not the mysterious realm that it was when Scott was born, but it is still not a well-charted region. To those who have met Scott Baker before, forget what you know. To those who haven't, you're in for a strange trip. Either way, it's going to be a bumpy ride, Hope you enjoy it. The story so far, although there are ghosts walking through these stories, we're starting from the ground floor and you're there. Feel lucky? You are. Steve Miller. So this is dated April 1992. As with the other ones, I decided to go ahead and read through this one as well. This is early Phil Hester artwork, but the basics are there. So if you like Phil Hester, you should fairly well like this. They do show you the origin sequence, how this cop goes to this lab, gets doused with chemicals, very toxic Avenger, becomes rust. We're showing a lot more of his backstory, his childhood. There's also sort of a, um, I hate to use the term magical Negro, but there's a, a black dude in a junkyard that seems to be knowledgeable beyond what you'd expect from a guy who's just a junker, who's essentially the spirit guide for the Scott Baker character throughout the miniseries. There's bits like how he's able to shape metal with his powers, and so he starts making sculptures, and so the, the junkyard guy gets him in touch with a art dealer, and so he's going to help defend himself with the artworks that he creates, and then he sees that his former cop partner is consoling his wife. Apparently the wife would like to do more than that, and it's the partner that's saying no, but our hero is not seeing that aspect of it. But he doesn't freak out, he's not a bad dude, he's not an angry kind of guy, so he just sort of accepts very spawn-like in some degree that he's just going to live in alleys and moan a lot. And there's even an ad for Spawn number 1 from when he was being published by Malibu with the awful original logo at the back of the book just to give you a sense of the timing on this. And the miniseries continues and there's a lot of like dream sequences and Scott getting used to his circumstances and involving himself with weird characters. I think that's sort of the hallmark of Russ from what I can tell is this just sort of this idiosyncratic series. And so I have to say that of the ones that I've read this was the best volume of Rust, but it only lasts four issues. I mostly lost interest with the book about halfway through. I sort of skimmed the rest of it. It, it just wasn't holding me. It's There's a reason why this character and most of these creators related to this character did not go on to bigger and better things within the industry. It's I, Again, it's better than the other two, but it's not anything all that special. It seems special. I think as advertised, it's a lot more interesting concept than is ever communicated by the actual art related to telling the story of this character. New targets acquired. Anti-wife equation. Cinema enemy number one. Artificial twins. Ben Kaiser. Bill at Spy Final. Billy Hines. Who added I love a swipe that can't even be bothered to put in minimum work. Hand holding the knife doesn't fit your comic. Redraw the hand. No, 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 no. Flames. We used to have advertising. Come looking for reference to lift. Have you got one with the whole cape? 
C.H. Charles Bronson's mom. Chris at Bat Books for Beginners. Chris Dunford. Chris Leiden. Collateral Cinema. Dave's Comic Heroes Blog. Derek W.C. Dr. Pop Culture. Dirk Ashton. Ed Moore. Ideal Productions. Flanger. Gregory Litchfield. History of Comics on Film. Illegal Machine. The Irredeemable Shag. JMT Productions. Julia Rowell. Who added this almost looks like a Saturday morning cartoon version of Terminator with the colors and character models and headless Terminator. Because now published Ghostbusters. To which Iowa Joe was affirmed. Yes. Kailash Duwamaki. Keith G. Baker. Kirk Spencer. Kurt Belcher. Looking for paid work. Lamar the Revenger. Lorenzo Sleestack. Luan Wolford, Miguel Quiros, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Nucky777, Once Upon a Geek, who added uh oh, is this another of those shows where I said a bunch of crazy inappropriate stuff and didn't realize you were recording it? It was totally worth the wait for the Ryan Daly segment. Ryan Daly, then added, I just listened to my segment, having no memory of recording for this episode. Amazing content, Doug Adamson snarked, maybe you recorded it in the future and it was sent back in time? Podcast Marketing Agency. Richard Field, Ciscoid, Superbound, and Talk Nerdy to Me. You have been listening to The Terminator Now, a rolled spine podcast. It's in no way associated with Hemdell Film Corporation, James Cameron, not even Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm just the best impersonator Frank could find. But I'm pretty good, right? <laughs> no infringement of rights are intended, and it's all covered by fair use. Anyway, Nobody's making any money on this thing, and hardly anyone is listening. So, don't waste your lawyer's time.